Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Lavroitis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. After Richard Nixon lost the 1960 presidential election and the race for California governor in 1962, he made a new life with his family in New York and became a partner at a Wall Street law firm, which would eventually be named Nixon, Mudge, Rose, Guthrie, and Alexander. This is all in a new book by Victor Lee called Nixon in New York. Lee is an attorney and an assistant matching editor with the ABA Journal. You can view his work at victor-lee.com or on Twitter at victorlee2000. Victor Lee, welcome. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Just to kind of start off, why did you decide to write this book about Nixon's uh, so-called wilderness years uh, in New York City? Yeah, well, I've always been interested in Nixon just uh, as a historical figure, um, you know, and and one thing that I felt like I never really knew too much about was what he did during those wilderness years. I mean, you know, we know a little bit about the, the about the about his political activities uh, that gets covered a lot, but I didn't really know much about what he did as a lawyer. And um, you know, in my in my job as a um, as a legal reporter, um, I've been doing this for about nine years now. Uh, it's something that really kind of piqued my interest just because yeah you know, I you know I would see some some things like in, in um, you know books about him where they would talk a little bit about what he did what he did as a lawyer or his time at the firm or his handling of certain cases but I never saw anything that really took a deep dive into it so I thought oh well why don't I do it I understand that you were given unprecedented access to the papers of Nixon one of Nixon's law partners uh, Tom Evans uh, could you tell us a little bit about this find and and who was who was Tom Evans? Sure. Well, uh, Tom Evans was, um, he was, uh, you know, like you said, he was someone who worked with Nixon at the firm. He worked with, uh, he, uh, when he joined the firm, um, he, uh, you know, met Nixon. He handled some some cases with him. And they got to know each other and became friendly. And, and he eventually um, helped him on his 1968 campaign. Um, Evans is someone who uh, was kind of a giant at the law, who, who became a giant at the law firm at the time he was still a young man. Um, he would eventually become managing partner of the firm. Uh, he sort of served as the firm's um, unofficial historian, someone who uh, kept a lot of documents over the years, memos, um, papers, things along those lines. And he was someone and uh, at the time because the whole thing kind of started when um, for his uh, when when we were coming up on Nixon's 50th anniversary after losing the uh, California race, I thought, oh well, wouldn't that be you know cool to do like kind of an article looking at, uh, what he did afterward, you know, first at his law firm, and then you know have how that prepared him for the '68 campaign. And I was hoping to kind of write something to coincide with the 50th anniversary of him moving to New York. Uh, but you know, um, uh, Mr. Evans just uh, happened to pass away around that time, so I never got a chance to talk with him. Uh, but I had seen something that he had been working on um, a manuscript about his experience with Nixon at the firm, um, and so and, you know, I, and I, I wasn't sure whether I, you know. Uh, you know, like I didn't want to overstep my boundaries or anything like that, because I was already kind of thinking about writing something, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to intrude on what he what he had written, or you know, if, if he was just going to cover the same thing that I did, I'm like, you know, then maybe it might not be worth doing. So after some deliberation, I reached out to one of his daughters, and just be like, you know, I'm not, you know, obviously, um, you know, if you're if you're interested in publishing this manuscript of his posthumously, you know, um, you know, I'm not I'm not going to write anything. I don't want to, um, you know, obviously. Do that, but you know, if 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 you if if you're not interested in doing it with it, you know, I would love to I would love to take a look at it if if that's possible. 
and she, and, and, and she was very nice. Her, her name's Heather. She lives in, she lives in Brooklyn. Um, she was very friendly, very nice. She said, actually, you know, um, uh, he had, he had, he had boxes and boxes of papers relating to that stuff, uh, which I had to come take a look at it. Uh, and I said, yeah, that'd be great. And so, you know, we talked and like, I, I she actually let me <laughs> have free run of her house in Brooklyn, even though she didn't even know who I was. Uh-huh. Um, let me have free run over house in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, just like, you know, going through the boxes and, you know, copying the documents and that kind of stuff. She was very nice, very friendly. And, and, and she was like, you know, we're not, we're not going to do anything with the manuscript, but, you know, we would love it if, um, you know, you could acknowledge just, just, um, you know, him and, you know, just, um, you know, the, um, you know, and, and his papers and that kind of stuff. And I said, yeah, of course. Um, and also I, I spoke with, her, um, uh, one of, one of Tom Evans's other daughters, Paige, who also had some documents as well, and she was also very friendly and very nice, um, and and gave me access to those. So you know, I, I probably couldn't have done it without them. So it was very, very, it was very nice of them to do that. They didn't have to. They didn't know me from you know from from Adam. So um, it was it was it was very nice of them to do that, and and, and I I definitely owe them a lot. What do the papers um, uh, give in terms of the story arc uh, for Nixon sure. in New York? Well, um, you know he. You know, Tom Evans was very meticulous as far as um, his his note keeping, as far as um, you know, just the things that he kept. He actually uh, had things kind of divided up, like he had you know several binders full of just campaign related stuff. He had um, you know several binders of like interviews that he had done with with people like he actually actually did an interview with Nixon, um, um, you know, in preparation for this project that he was working on. Um, he spoke with some other people like John Mitchell, um, uh, and, and people on those lines. And so, but one thing that like, one thing that was very interesting because I mean, lawyers back then, especially, uh, but now, you know, with email and whatnot, but back then, like they would, they wrote everything down. It's like everything, you know, even if, even if it was like, Hey, you got a phone call from so-and-so there'd be a memo. Um, you know, you got a, you got a phone call from so-and-so at five o'clock today, um, and things along those lines. And then, you know, people would initially, people would you know, sign it or whatnot. So, you know, there was a, a very large paper trail as far as, you know, what the things that he had done as a lawyer, like what is, what his day was like, what kind of cases he had worked on, um, you know, what kind of, um, you know, his, like his travel and, and, and how he balanced his firm, um, his, his, his firm responsibilities with his political activities, which were still going in full force at that point, um, billing records, um, you know, cause one thing, one thing about a law firm is, you know, it's a partnership. So, you know, the, the partners all need to know, you know, uh, uh, you know, how much money's coming in, who gets what, um, how the money gets divvied up and, and whatnot. So all that stuff was in there. All the, all that information was in there, you know, how much they were charging clients, how much, you know, how much work they did for clients. So it, it was, it was a lot of things that, that, um, you know, to go through, but it was a lot of, a lot of very interesting information. And one thing about Nixon was that he was very, very meticulous, you know, even, um, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people who could, you know, who could talk about his work ethic. But he was very, very meticulous. He, you know, he he was involved in he was involved in everything at the firm as far as, you know, maybe maybe he wasn't like, you know, he wasn't like he wasn't like, you know, as far as day to day activities, he didn't have as much to do with that stuff as some of the other partners. But as far as, you know, the big decisions, as far as bringing in partner, but bringing in clients, um, as far as you know, charting the strategy of the firm, he was very much involved in all that stuff. Who else did you talk to in your research for the book? Right. Well, um, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the people from that period have, have passed on. Uh, but I did speak with, um, I spoke with uh, Pat Buchanan, who was employed at the firm. Um, you know, he was he was a speechwriter who, um, he, he doesn't have a law degree, but he um, 
was working at the firm, you know, kind of work, you know, working working for Nixon at that point in preparation for his uh, for his campaign. I spoke with Dwight Chapin, the same thing, not a lawyer. Uh, he was at the firm, just working, you know, for for Nixon and and doing things on, you know, doing things you know, for him in preparation for the campaign. Uh, I, I spoke to John Sears, who is a lawyer, and um, you know, was 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 one of the people that got recruited onto his onto Nixon's campaign staff. Uh, you know, um, a lot of it based on his performance as a lawyer. He was a very highly regarded attorney at the firm, and who, um, you know, um, had made an impression on Len Garment, who was um, probably Nixon's closest colleague at the firm. Um, and I spoke with uh, uh, you know, several other lawyers at the firm as well, who had been there at the time um, with Nixon, and you know, like um, people who worked on the Hill case with him, the, the Supreme Court case that he argued. Um, and, you know, people who, you know, were young associates at the time and who eventually became, uh, you know, top lawyers at the firm, people like, um, Donald Zeller, who, um, ran the firm for a little while. So it, you know, I mean, it, 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 I didn't get a chance to talk to a lot of people just because of the time lapse and, and whatnot. But I, I you know, it, it was nice to be able to talk to some people who, 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 who had, who you know had been there with him and who could reflect on what he had done and and and, and the impact that they had made on 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 the made the impact he had made on their lives. The book is called Nixon and New York. Could you tell us our audience a little bit about Nixon's presence in New York? Where did he live in the city and where do and where was the law firm um, that sure. would eventually be called Nixon, Mudge, Rose, Guthrie, and Alexander? Right. Well, the law firm was located actually on Wall Street. Um, basically, uh, there was. You know, um, a lot, a lot of the in in New York, obviously there are a ton of law firms. Uh, it's probably the law firm capital, if not the law firm capital of the world, is one of the law firm capitals of the world. Um, and so, you know, in like a in like a several block radius in New York, um, in Wall Street, you'll get like a bunch of top firms um, you know, that were these so-called white shoe firms, where you know they handle big cases, they handle um, you know they have big clients and whatnot. And so, Mudge historically was one of these top firms um, um, on Wall Street, and they had, for the longest time, uh, handled handled cases for uh, well, handled matters for clients, you know, ranging from um, you know uh, Bank of New York uh, to um, you know Chase Bank, um, you know, a lot of a lot of these kind of big, uh, I think like Studebaker and you know things along those lines. These really big uh, companies who would give you know, give a lot of their business to the firm. Um, when Nixon came to New York, uh, came to came to the came to the firm, the firm was kind of in a bit of a slump. You know, as as a lot of law firms will go through slumps every once in a while. Uh, partners will partners will leave. Partners will will, will pass on. Um, you know, there was so there, there you know there was sort of a transition going on where you know the older generation that had handled most of the big ticket items they were starting to leave or retire or. And some of the new lawyers coming up, maybe they weren't quite ready to pick up the slack or they were still learning things or they were, you know, not quite where they needed to be. And and so the firm was kind of in a kind of in a sludge of that uh, kind of in a slump at that point. And actually, they were derogatorily known as mudge, sludge, fudge and won't budge just because they were they didn't have the best reputation at that point. Um, so so what happened was Nixon was looking for a landing spot after losing that 62 election. Uh, in California, and he wanted to go to New York because it was um, a city that excited him, a city that um, really intrigued him as far as what he was looking for. I mean, he 
after he had lost the 60 election, he went back to California to practice law, and he didn't find it very fulfilling. Uh, and actually, he had he had spent most of his time running, uh, preparing his run for governor. So, um, so a move to New York really kind of stimulated him because, you know, it was still, you know, it was it was near the UN, so there'd always be like foreign dignitaries passing through. Um, it was seen as the big league for 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 the law because that's where all the big firms were, that's where all the big money was. Um, and you know, Nixon was always trying to prove himself. Uh, to the to the so-called Eastern establishment, as you know, as you know, trying to prove his credentials as someone who belonged, and so um, going to New York really appealed to him. And a firm like Mudge could des- you know desperately needed someone like him who um, knew everybody, who had a big name, and who you know when 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 he called up when he called someone you know that call would get returned. Um, you know, Richard Nixon leaves a leaves a message for you. You're gonna you're gonna call back. So so I so. That was sort of the draw for someone like Nixon, and this is still something that happens to this day. On, you know, with with big law firms, they're looking for someone with a big Rolodex. Um, sorry, there's someone they're looking for someone with a big Rolodex, someone who knows a lot of people, someone who you know can get those calls returned and can get um, you know clients to come and 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 meet with you. And you know, Nixon fit the bill for 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 a firm that desperately needed someone to come in and kind of kind of shake things up um and he he really seemed to enjoy living in new york you know uh he he lived um he lived on fifth avenue which was uh this really you know this really um you know in a really nice apartment building it's actually the same the same building that nelson rockefeller lived in um and you know he definitely um enjoyed himself while he was there he would, would, would very often go to go to sporting events he would uh, go to theater occasionally. Toward the, you know, toward the toward the end of his time, he would just spend a lot, a lot, a lot of a lot of time. He would spend spend the evening at home reading books in his study, uh, or you know, entertaining people, you know, in his in his uh, in his new apartment. Um, so he definitely seemed to enjoy himself while he was there. And it, you know, if it, if it hadn't been for the fact that he desperately wanted to be president, you know, it would have been a very good lifestyle for 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 a lot of people um you know and a really enviable lifestyle for a lot of lawyers who you know would kind of look at that as sort of the pinnacle of, of what they could achieve you talked about him moving to new york and the attraction of going of going there how did he come to join uh that firm was was there anyone who particularly recruited him to be there yeah well um well um so what happened was um elmer bobst was uh one of their main clients probably their main client at that point he brought in the most business uh he was a pharmaceutical giant who um was very good friends with with uh, with Nixon, and so what happened was he he told he told the firm because you need you need you need uh, a guy you you need Richard Nixon at this firm you need someone who you need new blood at the top uh, and you need someone like him that can come in and give you the things that that, that you've been looking for and so he brokered he brokered a, um, uh, a meeting between uh, some between se- several of the senior partners and Nixon they had a they had a round of golf. Um, uh, they, they played around a golf and afterward, you know, they were kind of talking, just, um, you know, shooting the breeze and, you know, talking about Nixon, whether or not, uh, he would be devoted to the firm, whether or not, um, you know, he was just using the firm to, to, to be a stepping stone for another run. And, you know, the part, the partners were, were, they were, um, satisfied that Nixon would, 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 would bring in enough benefits to the firm um, and whatnot, that that you know they should go ahead and take the plunge and hire, and and make a make a deal with them. So, you know they they went back to uh, they went back to the hotel. They they drew up uh, 
you know, they drew up an agreement and they, you know, <laughs> drew names out of a hat to see whose names will come after Nixon because obviously his name would have to come up the front. Um, and, you know, that was pretty much that. And then he, he moved to New York. He um, applied for the bar. And, you know, after, once, once he got admitted, he, he was free to start practicing law. And the future attorney general, if I'm not mistaken, John Mitchell, um, also was at that firm. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, he, he, well, he came later. Um, so what happened was, you know, very often, you know, as, uh, you know, as for um, in, the, in the legal world, there are all kinds of mergers and acquisitions going on where firms will merge or, you know, one, a bigger firm will acquire a smaller firm. And so in this case, um, John Mitchell had a very, very successful uh, firm where he practiced municipal bonds. And he made a ton of money. He was probably one of the most uh, politically connected lawyers in the country because just the nature of the work made him go to like all these all these municipalities, all these cities, all these states that wanted to um, that wanted to raise money by issuing municipal bonds. And so Mitchell would come in, he would he would drop the bonds. He would, you know, if 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 there were laws that needed to be to be changed in the states or the municipalities or the cities to allow for these bonds to be to be issued, then he would you know they would then you know he and his team would consult on you know what needed to be done. Um, you know, so, so he got to know everybody basically in the country and actually, and actually, you know, there was a question as to what his, what his real political affiliation, affiliation was, because there was a story that came out in, um, in a book, in, in a book written you know, by, about John Mitchell, uh, that said that, you know, at, at one point, uh, the Kennedys had actually approached him to, um, to, uh, to manage JFK's campaign. Oh, wow. So, um, so, so he knew everybody. He had a kid, a good kid, a good relationship with Nelson Rockefeller, actually, because in New York they worked very closely together, um, you know, uh, uh, enacting these municipal bonds so that the state, the state, uh, so the state could raise money. And so they got, you know, um, there was too much work coming in for the firm. They needed, um, they needed like, you know, they, they, you know, they needed more, they needed more people, more infrastructure, more, more, you know, um, uh, a larger, you know, a larger footprint to be able to deal with all these issues. And much was looking for um, merger part uh, acquisition. And, you know, they were looking for firms to acquire because uh, they were in expansion mode as well. So that seemed like a good fit for them. They were looking to, um, you know, kind of get into get into this municipal bond um, um, market because at, at the time it was it was exploding. And there was the added benefit for Nixon that um, Mitchell was someone who knew everybody that um, you know Nixon would need to talk to, get to know. If, if not, if, if not already know someone that you know he could he could have, he could he could send to like you know massage them or talk to them or you know whatnot. So Mitchell was became the perfect the perfect choice for him as far as a campaign manager, even though he had never run a campaign before. And um, you know Mitchell proved himself pretty quickly that he was um, you know that you know that, that he and Nixon could work well together, and you know that he would do the things that. Um, you know, he he would he he would be able to run the campaign in a way that would best uh, that would best allow Nixon to um, you know concentrate on sort of the big picture and what needed to be done in order to win to win the nomination and then the election. Who were some of the other uh, big partners in the book? You mentioned Guthrie, uh, but some of the other names: Mudge, Mudge Rose, um, Alexander um, Guthrie himself. Were any of these people um, operating the firm? Sure. Well, Mudge was a um, Mudge was sort of the legacy name left over from because um, the firm had gone through many iterations over the years, as a lot of these firms do. Um, Mudge Mudge had been like sort of the original name of the firm was like was like Rushmore Rushmore Stern, 
but at one point, then uh, you know, uh, Mudge took over and became the senior partner, so it became Mudge, Rushmore, Stern, and Bisbee, or something like that. And then, um, so so he actually isn't he's he's no longer in the picture at the time the firm, uh, you know, the, at, at the time Nixon comes in, just because that was just the name that they always used, and and that was that was how they were known on on um, that's how they were known like on Wall Street and to, uh, you know within the legal industry. Um, Rose was one of the firms. Rose was one of the partners at the firm. Um, he was someone. Uh, he wasn't that involved with um, with uh, with Nixon or with the, the politics, especially. I mean, he he was someone who um, he was more involved with, uh, you know, kind of running the firm, uh, you know, doing doing things, kind of running running the, doing the day to day management and whatnot. Uh, he was a partner who. Um, who you know, had had been in the firm for a long time, um, and he you know was kind of more more someone who um, wasn't quite um, you know involved in, in in politics and whatnot. Uh, Guthrie was someone who was very much involved in in that stuff. He he became Nixon's close friend uh, at the firm as well. Uh, in, in addition to Leonard Garment, who was probably his his best friend at the firm. Um, Guthrie was um, someone he, he he was sort of the, he was sort of the de facto head of the firm. Uh, before before Nixon came in, he he pretty much ran things. He was um, he had a very um, you know Nixon was <laughs> Nixon said that he was he he reminded him more of Lyndon Johnson than Lyndon Johnson did. He had that big personality, someone who uh, would, you know would come into a room and just you know immediately start slapping everybody's backs, and you know everyone would just you know kind of naturally kind of gravitate towards him. So he had that he had that that big dynamic you know personality that's um, you know not necessary. Uh, to, to be a Wall Street lawyer, but definitely helps, especially if you're bringing in business and bringing in clients. Um, but they became very close, and, and he he was actually kind of Nixon's mentor in a lot of ways because, you know, even though Nixon had always, you know, he, even though you know he was, um, um, you know, he he had been in the public eye for so long, and he was used to dealing with, um, the, you know, those kind of those kind of those kind of um, uh, things on Wall Street. He was not quite well versed, and he didn't quite understand how things were done. Uh, just because you know he hadn't been there, so Guthrie sort of became his teacher, like just you know teaching him how to, um, you know how to how to you know how to deal with clients, how to um, you know yeah uh, how to um, um, you know how to be a lawyer at the firm, uh, how to be a partner of the firm, and how to run thing how to how to like run the firm and things along those lines. Um, and then and then some of the other like and then I think uh, um, you know the the other one of the other partners Alexander was someone who. Uh, Nixon also um, had had a pretty good relationship with, as far as you know, like talking to talking to him about policy, talking to him about um, you know, um, you know, like issues like like he was he was a tax expert. So um, when Nixon was like kind of like going through like tax like trying to figure out what his tax plan would be, um, you know, one of his one of his lawyers went to go talk, one of his um, one of the people on the staff went to go talk to Alexander to get his his. His input, but by far, like his 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 closest relations with the firm were with Guthrie and with Len Garment. Could you take us through some of the um, most notable clients and cases? You list a couple in your book: uh, Pepsi, uh, Mitsui and Company, uh, National Bull Carriers, uh, Paper Mate. Uh, what was the nature of uh, Nixon's uh, work at the firm, especially on some of these notable cases that you mentioned? Sure. Well, his his main. Um his main function was to bring in business. Um, he wasn't so much a, a courtroom lawyer, even though uh, he did he did have a training as a litigator. 
uh, and he had um, he had worked as a litigator early in his career, uh, and he had actually had a pretty good, pretty decent reputation as a trial lawyer when he had practiced law uh, before uh, before um, uh, you know becoming, before being elected to Congress. But um, uh, his his main function was really just to uh, was really just to uh, bring in business. Uh, he was someone like like I said earlier who who knew everybody. He had a lot of very he had a lot of friends who were business heads, leaders, you know, um, leaders, leaders in that sense, who um, who liked him and who you know were, were very much hoping that he would eventually run for president again. And so um, his main job was really to, to to kind of bring those people into the firm, like Pepsi, for instance. Um, um, you know, during that uh, famous um, showdown that he had with Khrushchev in Russia, uh, it was it was it was over Pepsi. Well, Pepsi was one of the things that, that helped spark it, and um, and you know, ultimately Pepsi got a lot of good PR from that because at one point Khrushchev drank drank a Pepsi on camera and you know said that so that he thought it tasted he thought it tasted good. So 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 the so the CEO of, of Pepsi, Don Kendall, was was very much indebted to Nixon, and he basically told. He, he let it be known when Nixon was looking for jobs in New York. Anyone that anyone that hires Nixon will get my business too. And Pepsi obviously <laughs> is a client that any law firm would kill for because they have so much. They, you know, they're a huge company. They have you know all kinds of matters that 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 you know um, that that would that would bring in all kinds of like all kinds of money and all kinds of uh, work and whatnot. So 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 that was sort of what. That, that was really what he did as far as uh, his legal career. He was just really more someone that would just bring in business, be a magnet for the for the for the firm, be some like a public face for the firm, and bring in bring in clients. But that being said, he also did handle uh, he actually did handle substantive cases, and the biggest one obviously was Time Time versus Hill's Supreme Court case, um, and that was you know very much and and that wasn't a case where he was just you know kind of. Swooping in for the for the for the oral argument and just and then and then you know you know saying saying a bunch reciting a bunch of lines and then and then and then taking off. He actually he had to work, you know he had to work really hard to like learn learn what the case was about to memorize the record to um, understand like what laws what laws were um, you know what laws were at stake. Understand uh, what you know what how to craft an argument to appeal to um, to appeal to a majority of the justices on the Supreme Court, many of whom. You know, he he was convinced, didn't like him very much. So it was a you know, so the Time versus Hill case was a, was an instance where he kind of showed his showed his lawyerly side, and his his ability to be um, you know, uh, not just a um, um, a meticulous preparer, but someone who could also go you know onto um, the big stage of the Supreme Court and deliver an oral argument that was fairly well received. Could you take us through that a little bit? You know, some of the details about the case and and Nixon's um, uh, meticulous work. Work on that, and uh, what you know. Ultimately, what was the outcome of that case? Sure. So, so the Time versus Hill case was a First Amendment. It was well, not, it wasn't a First Amendment case. I guess it, it was. It, it was. It was. It was a case where um, where um, there was a very high-profile kidnap, uh, kidnapping, and like like home invasion case um, that had occurred when a bunch of uh, escape, uh, uh, well, a bunch of escape convicts had broken into someone's house. And nearby, and then taking them hostage for for a few hours before escaping. And you know, this was this was uh, it, it became dramatized. Um, uh, well, well, first the incident got a lot of publicity with uh, with newspapers and, and 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 the media and whatnot. And then once that died down, um, you know, then then it, it, then 
it inspired a lot of dramatic uh, reenactments or, you know, um, not, not reenactments, but it inspired a lot of, um, you know, uh, plays, movies, uh, and things along those lines that were kind of similar to it, but maybe not like direct reenactments of it. Um, you know, the most famous was The Desperate Hours, which was a movie starring um, um, Humphrey Bogart and uh, I think Frederick March um, that, that kind of dramatized that dramatized the incident, uh, but also kind of kind of uh, um, changed some of the details as well. So that wasn't like a direct reenactment of it. So what happened was the family uh, didn't like any of this because they they just wanted to be left alone. And actually, they had to like relocate at one point because just there was so much interest in the case that people were coming to the house and be like, "Oh, that's the house where it took place," or you know, "This is where this happened," or "This is where this happened." So they actually had to move. And so the last straw for them happened when Life magazine printed a um, an article in one of their issues where they kind of reenacted the case. like on their pages, because I mean, obviously they're known for having you know, the great photographs, and so they, in what what they did was that in preparation for the for the play pre, for the premiere of the play version, they had like members of the cast go to the uh, to the actual house and kind of reenact uh, parts of the uh, parts of the play, um, you know, and 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 it was billed as oh this is a reenactment of what actually happened uh, that night when 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 these escaped convicts broke into the house. And so this outraged um, the family, and they sued because they said that's not what happened. Um, this isn't this isn't true. Um, this is all. This is you know this is a dramatic you know, the dramatization of what of what we went through. Um, and so they sued, and uh, the firm uh, took the case. Uh, the one of the plaintiffs was a uh, was a uh, was a friend of Guthrie's, and so um, Guthrie assigned the case to Garment, and then um, Garment handled the case all through its trial stages. But then when it got to the Supreme Court. Um, he thought it would be a great idea for Nixon to take the Supreme Court argument, um, and this is an issue that had always been, you know, near and dear to Nixon's heart. And, you know, as someone who had clashed with the media for a long time, who, um, you know, had 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 his battles with them and whatnot, he kind of he he this case appealed to him, um, and for for a couple of reasons. One that he could he could show that he was standing up for the little guy against the you know the intrusive press. Uh, but also, um, this is also a chance for him to show what a great lawyer he was, what a great, um, you know, what a great advocate he was. And if he won a case before the Supreme Court, uh, one that was, you know, one that was fairly, like I said, you know, a lot where a lot of the judges were probably predisposed to not liking him very much, uh, that would show that he um, was a winner, that he was someone, um, you know, who had who had accomplished, you know, uh, who had accomplished you know, everything there was to accomplish in the legal field and. You know, kind of rehabilitate his image uh, heading into the '68 election, which is where his head was at at that point, because he still had that loser. He still had that loser label kind of hanging over his head as a result after a result of '60 uh, and '62. Uh, but anyway, you know, he he he. Um, what he did was that as he was traveling the country, um, campaigning for various people, you know, um, Senate races, governor, uh, gubernatorial races, congressional races, everything along those lines. He would, you know, while he was traveling. Uh, you know, on the on the plane or on the bus, he would just start meticulously preparing for for his argument. He would he memorized the entire case file. Um, he sat there and jotted down like all kinds of all kinds of all kinds of notes and strategies and like um, you know um, he would he would he read like um, all kinds of treatises related to uh, you know First Amendment rights and and free you know, free speech and privacy. Um, you know he. 
he, he worked very closely with a team of associates, uh, bouncing ideas off them. Um, you know, they would draft memos and he would comment on them. Um, you know, sometimes they would, they would, they would talk about just, um, you know, what, you know, what, uh, trying, trying to craft their arguments to appeal to certain justices and things along those lines. So he was very involved and it was very, it was a very, um, busy time for him just because he had to balance that with his campaigning. Uh, but ultimately he, you know, um, there's an interesting story that, that came out a few years ago where he actually won, he actually won the case originally, but, uh, it got put over. And then in, in the interim, um, one of the justices behind the scenes kind of lobbied, um, you know, kind of, kind of, um, you know, did his best to try to, to try to, to try to change the result of the case to get people over to his side. And then when they, when they, when they re-argued the case the following year and they took, and they, you know, uh, the justice ended up voting and he ended up losing. So, um, you know, it was a case that he was kind of upset about that he lost. Um, there's a quote in there saying that, you know, he should have known that he would never be able to, he would never be permitted to win, uh, win a big appeal against the press. Um, and for the longest time, it was something that he was, that he didn't like to talk about. Um, like actually, I think like in, in one of his books, he doesn't even mention the case, um, even though he talks about, um, you know, freedom of speech and freedom and right to privacy and things along those lines. Um, so it seemed like it was a sore point for him for the longest time. Um, just, you know, just with regards to, you know, how it turned out. What was the core of his, uh, you know, you talk about privacy and first amendment. What was the core of Richard Nixon's argument? Right. Well, the core, I mean, basically his, his argument was that because, because his argument was that because life lied about what happened, then, then they weren't entitled to, uh, protection because their, their argument was obviously, you know, freedom of speech, first amendment, we're, you know, we're allowed to, um, we're allowed to, uh, write about these things. But his argument was, you know, uh, because, because they lied about it, then that puts it outside the first amendment and they're not entitled to protection. Um, and, you know, he, one of the, one of the things that he did was that he really tried to, uh, appeal to, um, the justice's sense of, of, of injustice. Like this is not right. What happened to this, to this family? They didn't ask for any of this. Um, um, you know, he, he knew that a couple of, a couple of the justices on the court had had negative experiences with the press, like Earl Warren, for instance, who was chief justice, but he had previously been governor of California and had been a, he and Nixon had been enemies for the longest time. Uh, but he, he, he said before the argument, Earl Warren's going to vote with us because he knows what it's like to have his name dragged through the mud. He knows what it's like to have his family get hounded like this. And he's, and, and he's going to understand that it's not fair. And there, you know, there were, there were a couple other justices on the, on the, on the court who were, you know, known to be first amendment, um, you know, to be, to be liberals when it came to the first amendment, I guess, for lack of a better term. But he felt like he could, he could, he could peel them off just by appealing to their, sense of, you know, this wasn't right. What happened to this, what happened to, the, to this, um, to this family? It, you know, they didn't, you know, it, they, um, they got, they got uh, dealt a bad hand by, by, uh, by life, by life, not the magazine, <laughs> but then life, the magazine came in and made it worse. And so, uh, that was sort of the essence of his argument that, um, because, because it was a lie, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't, um, it, you know, it, 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 it it's not protected by the first amendment. Uh, but, Ultimately, you know, it was a case where, um, you know, there were there were there were other first there were other um, issues at play as well besides that. But uh, one thing that the court focused on when they when they finally when they finally handed down the decision was that, um, you know, the First Amendment the First Amendment is 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 something that's really important to this country. Obviously, it's um, you know obviously it, it, it's terrible what this family went through, but um, it's not. It, it, it goes too far if if 
if um, you know we start censoring um, magazines and newspapers, not letting them not letting them write about things that uh, have a legitimate have a legitimate um, 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 news you know news value, and basically you know, the the standard for proving proving um, you know the standard for the standard for proving libel at that point was already pretty high, and so this this case just kind of continued that. Um, continue that that expansive kind of um, reading of the First Amendment as far as you know it, it, it would be very difficult for um, for an individual plaintiff to be able to make out that they had been damaged um, as a result of something that something that the something that the press printed you write that it, that sometimes it wasn't Nixon's political connections that were needed by the law firm but his political skills uh, could you touch yeah. upon this a little bit sure um, well, uh, I mean, one thing that um, one thing that um, when he was when he was practicing law, uh, a lot of people would write to him, um, obviously, you know, looking for his political advice, just because obviously he was a great politician. He was um, someone who understood the game, um, and so you know, a lot of it very often was uh, people who would just ask him for for help with regards to how to get out of a sticky situation. Or how to how to deal with a politically difficult issue. Like there was one, there was one uh, client that he had. Um, uh, his name was Patrick Frawley, who was um, he, uh, he was president of EverSharp, and he previously run PaperMate, and you know that company would eventually become uh, Schick Razor. So you know, pretty big, pretty big case, a pretty big uh, client. And he was someone who was he was very he was very conservative. He was very outspoken anti-communist. Um, you know he had he had. Um, I think one of his plants had got nationalized in Cuba, so he was uh, upset about losing that. So he was someone who was very interested in what happened, um, you know, in, in U.S. policy towards Cuba and what and what would happen, you know, going forward. Um, and he was someone who liked Nixon. He was um, um, he was outraged when um, when 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 he lost the uh, 1962 governor, gubernatorial race and how the press kind of piled on him afterwards. So he was. Uh, someone who really uh, valued Nixon's friend, friendship and his opinion, and so he was going through like a like a he had a political matter that he uh, was dealing with where um, um, I think like a like a, a talk show host had accused him of being an anti-Semite, uh, someone who um, uh, was tied to uh, anti-Semitic groups throughout the country, and so he was so he so he called in so he sorry he 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 he, he sent a series of letters to Nixon asking him okay. How do I deal with this? Can I sue this guy? Uh, you know, can I? Well, what 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 are my options here? And so Nixon, you know, obviously understood what it was, you know, what he was going through. Uh, but he also understood, you know, and and this was this was before the the the, uh, the Hill case. But he understood how difficult it was to 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 prevail on these kind of lawsuits. So, you know, he 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 had, um, you know, he he through uh, through Tom Evans actually, you know. Had him, uh, you know, come up with like memos and letters and whatnot, telling him, you know, what his options were as far as legal legal options, but then also public relations wise, like how you can how you can deal with this because you know it's it's difficult to to prevail in these kind of lawsuits, and you know this is something that could probably be handled, you know, just by uh, making a statement or um, you know just talking about talking about um, just making your views clear and things and, and things like that. Um, other times, you know, he. Um, for instance, uh, there was um, there was um, one of his um, you know clients was uh, 
a very a very well known um, sugar magnate in this country, um, and you know his name uh, his name was William Pauley, and he was also someone who was kind of like uh, Frawley, and, and the names are kind of similar now that I think about it. But uh, he was similar to Frawley in the sense that like he had also um, you know lost uh, you know lost, you know, lost uh, one of his factories during the Cuban Revolution. Uh, he was very interested in, in 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 the future of this country with regards to Cuba, but also anti-communism and things along those lines. And but he had a very specific problem because he had these sugarcane fields, and you know because of restrictions on the law, he couldn't um, because of quotas and whatnot that were mandated by Congress, he couldn't uh, he, he couldn't farm um, or he couldn't harvest a certain amount of uh, you know a certain amount of that or use a certain amount of his land to be able to to grow the sugar. And so he was. Looking for Nixon's skills as a politician to 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 figure out how to how to uh, navigate Congress and try to get them to to lift these quotas. Um, so very often it's just th- it was things like that. Just just you know, wh- you know what do I do for this? What do I do for that? Um, you know, uh, I have this political problem. Can you can you tell me how to fix it? Um, and you know, he was obviously very good at that. Something you know he had dealt with for so many years and that he had skills with, and he knew the people that were that were in power. So you know he was someone that was very valuable to have, um, you know, in your Rolodex if you're if you're a, a corporate titan, you know, like like a William Pauley or a Patrick Foley. Um, Richard Nixon was an avid Asia watcher. Um, you know, he had, he had went on foreign study trips. He wrote that uh, famous article in uh, Foreign Affairs magazine in 1967, October of that year, um, Asia after Vietnam. Um, you talk a little bit in your book about the. Uh, about an initiative to expand the firm's presence um, in Asia, specifically uh, Japan. Um, can you yeah. can you touch upon this initiative just a little bit? Sure. Well, I mean, law firms are always looking to expand. Um, you know, more. You know, the more countries you can be in, the more. You know, the more. You know, the more companies you can you can get you can get. Um, you know, on, onto the you know onto the onto the billing. Uh, you know. Onto the billing invoices and and things along those lines. So it, it's always it's always a good problem to have. I mean, it, it can be a problem, obviously, if you expand too much or uh, if you expand you know incorrectly. But so the law firms ultimately, you know, most of them, at least the big ones, are always looking to get bigger. Um, so he hit upon an idea that actually um, not a lot of not a lot of firms were doing at the time. At least not a lot of American firms were doing at the time uh, to open a um, a Nixon Mudge office in Japan. Um, they had a lot of clients in Japan. Mitsui um, was was probably the biggest one, uh, but also uh, companies like Pepsi, uh, companies like Pepsi were always were, at, the, at the time they were actively trying to expand into Asia, and that was one of the reasons why. And that, and that, and that was actually one of the, you know, very often on his trips to Asia um, uh, for the firm, he would they would double as uh, fact finding fact finding missions for him uh, so that he could talk to. Foreign dignitaries, so that he could talk to, um, he could, um, you know, meet with meet with powerful people abroad, uh, especially in Asia, where you know the Vietnam War, the Vietnam War was going on, um, and you know he would he, and, and like you know in, in Taiwan with Chiang Kai Shek, but um, they would also kind of function as uh, business trips for him, so that he could try to advance the interests of some of a company like Pepsi that was trying to expand its markets. Um, so. So he came upon this idea of to, to open a op, open an office in t- in Tokyo that would help so that they could better serve their Asian centric clients like Pepsi, like Mitsui, and things and, and those kind of co- and those kind of companies um, so they could get advice immediately rather than have to wait 
uh, until you know uh, they, they they got word back from New York or DC or Paris. Um, but the problem with with that was that Japan at the time had very uh, restrictive laws as to who could practice law in the country. Um, you had to you had to pass their bar exam, which was which was very very difficult. Um, and you also um, um, like you had to um, yes like yeah you, you had to be admitted to practice law there, which was very difficult. And also just culturally, you know, the Japan is one of those countries that's very uh, very proud of you know. The, the people are very proud of the heritage, so it was sort of frowned upon culturally to to um, to embrace like a um, a Western firm when there was a perfectly good Japanese firm, um, you know, uh, uh, that that could handle your case for your your, your matters for you. Um, so, but still, you know, Nixon came up with this idea of partnering with a firm um, in Japan, an existing firm, uh, so that so they would they would be able to handle. Uh, Matters that are, that arose for uh, the clients and for Mudge Rose for Nixon Mudge clients uh, in, in in Asia, uh, and they you know based on his papers it looks like they 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 they, they talked to a few people um, they tried to uh, get something going and tried to um, make make this happen but ultimately it was it was something that was too difficult um, the regulatory hurdles were too high um, and ultimately and ultimately was something that that, that they, they decided not to do. Um, you know, eventually, firms would would do this. Um, um, open, open, be able to open um, offices in Japan and whatnot, or either through the joint venture uh, idea, with, like combining with a local firm or opening on their own. And actually, the Mudge firm would end up um, opening a Japanese office, but not until 1991. So that just shows you how difficult it was, just how um, how how prohibitive some of the regulations were. Uh, but you know, it also shows that he was kind of ahead of the curve because now you know it, it's very common for uh, you know the big law firms to have you know not just one office in Japan but multiple offices there, or you know in in China or in Taiwan and things along those lines. So it's so it, it, it's something that would have been really interesting had he been able, had he been able to pull it off. But given given um, everything that was going on and you know just how how difficult how difficult some of the some of the um, uh, some of the some of the rules and, and laws were it, it would have it would have been a pretty pretty Herculean Herculean undertaking for him. Ultimately, how did the um, how did Nixon Mudge uh, feel about uh, Richard Nixon's ambitions uh, to gear up for the presidential cam- presidential campaign in uh, nineteen sixty eight? Sure. I mean, I think everybody kind of knew that um, he wanted to run for president again, even though he said at the time, you know, you know, my <laughs> my. Um, uh, you know, my political career is over. You won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Things along those lines. I think everyone still kind of knew that he was going to try again. And you know, back then, um, you know, there there have been plenty of candidates who had who had uh, gotten who 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 had uh, received the nomination again after losing before. I mean, Dewey, um, Adelaide Stevenson. So, so it wasn't out of the realm of possibility for Nixon to to um, to win the nomination again. It was going to be difficult. But um, it was something that I think most people at the firm kind of knew he was going to do, um, and 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 mostly they were okay with it because uh, he 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 produced for the firm. He brought in all these clients that they wouldn't have that they, that they wouldn't have given much the time of day if, um, if if Nixon hadn't been there. And they kind of took they kind of took the attitude that what's good for Nixon is good for the firm because as long as uh, the press thinks that he's a viable candidate. As long as they're treating him as some, as, as long as they're treating him as someone important, 
someone who's worth getting comments on whenever anything happens, you know, on the white at the White House or on Capitol Hill or 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 abroad, then that's good publicity for the firm because they'll always say, you know, um, you know, they'll always identify Richard Nixon in their stories as you know the senior partner at Nixon, Mudge, Rose, Guthrie, and Alexander. So, so, so they kind of took took the attitude that you know it, it was good PR for the firm. Uh, his ambitions could serve the firm uh, and and allow them to grow, and and, and it did. Um, they they gave him all kinds of um, leeway when it came to recruiting, when it came to recruiting his staff, when it came to bringing people in who weren't lawyers but were just there were, were just there to help him with, with with his political matters like writing speeches or researching 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 topics for him um, or just you know planning a schedule and things along those lines. So you know they they very much benefited uh, by their association with with Nixon, but then conversely. Uh, once, once Nixon got in the White House and Watergate started raging, they kind of suffered because of their 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 uh, their association because of their association with Nixon. Because, I mean, obviously um, they were known throughout. You know, they were known as Richard Nixon's firm um, and John Mitchell's firm. And so once once Watergate started raging, then they paid the price um, as far as uh, attorney defections, as far as uh, client defections. Uh, you know. Having having a having a bad reputation uh, on Wall Street, even though they weren't they weren't accused of anything, they weren't um, you know they weren't implicated in anything. But it's just you know you don't want that association at that point. You know the association was good for a long time, but now it was bad. Our guest today is Victor Lee, author of Nixon in New York. Our topic was Richard Nixon's life in New York in the 1960s and his work as an attorney for a major law firm. Victor Lee, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This is Jonathan Mavroida signing off.